Cloud. Okay, hello friends, and welcome to a Chavura public shiur. Today we have the privilege of having Rabbi Chaim Rappaport with us, and together we will explore the fundamental topic of Rambam's approach to Agadah. A little about our speaker, Rabbi Chaim Rappaport, born in Manchester, England, attended the Yeshivot of Manchester, Gateshead, Yerushalayim, and New York. He has been the Rav of synagogues in Birmingham and Ilford, and was a member of the Chief Rabbi's Cabinet, and advisor to then-Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs on issues of medical ethics. He is currently Rosh Kolel of the Rabbinic Training Academy in London. Uh, for those who don't remember, a while back we had Rabbi Rappaport on uh, with us, and we explored the approach of the Tosafot, which was a very popular shiur. Uh, personally, I found that shiur fascinating, and I'm very excited for tonight's shiur with the rabbi. Um, I highly recommend all who missed it uh, to go back and check it out. Um, for all the non-members who may uh, not have heard, uh, the Chabura has just announced its new curriculum, which will take effect in September and has open registration for all to join. And if you have been casually following us on YouTube or social media and find what we do valuable, I highly recommend becoming a member and taking full advantage of all the cutting-edge members' weekly shiurim we have to be a part of live events, meetups, our journal, our Discord, and to support our initiatives like our publishing house. Uh, with that said, this class will be recorded and available after. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, please raise your hand, and please, God, we will also have time for questions at the end. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Uh, Rabbi Rappaport, it is a privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much. When one discusses the Rambam's approach to Agadot and Midrashim, the usual point of call, or first port of call for most speakers on this subject would be the comments that the Rambam makes in his commentary on the Mishnah in Sanhedrin chapter 10, Perek Chedek, where he says that there are three classes of people who discuss the, uh, who interpret the words of the Chachamim, Zichronam Bivracha, uh, the, uh, and he goes through the first class, the second class, People take the words of the rabbis literally. They think that the intent of the sages is nothing more than the literal interpretation indicates. As a result, they come to they come to denigrate the sages, to deprecate them. And uh, eventually, he speaks about the third class, which he says is comprised of so few individuals that it is hardly appropriate to call them class. And he says that they understand that the words of Agadah are meshalim. They're not to be understood literally. They are moshal v'chido, a parable, a riddle. And uh, this is, of course, the class of people who have hit the nail on the head. They have understood the truth. And this is the class to which the Rambam himself belongs and to which he calls any thinking, intelligent person to, uh, this is the, the approach that he invites us to embrace. Now, it's important to note very often when people teach this section of the Rambam in itself, um, they don't say who the Rambam is talking to, who the Rambam is discussing. 
Now, it's difficult to know exactly who he meant, but what we can say for sure is that the notion that Akodata Shasa to be taken literally is something which can be seen most prominently amongst the Ba'alei HaTosafot. There are numerous examples in the Talmud how the French and German Tosafists and their understanding of Chazal understood the words of Akadah literally. And this in sharp contrast to many of the more philosophical traditions that understood them as, as, as allegory. Um, just to give a simple example to start off with, the Balea Tosafot in Bava Batra 16b. So the Gemara says there, comments on the verse, Vahashem Berachet Abraham Bakol. So one interpretation is that it's Tagninut Hayata Belibosher Abraham Avinu, Shakomachim Mizrach Marav Mashkim in the Pitcho. Abishimul Beyochioma Evan Tova Hayata Tuluya Betsavoroshel Abraham Avinu, Shakol Hole Haro Otom Yad Mitrapesh, Mashash Niftar Abraham Avinu in Olam. There was a precious stone, says Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, that was hanging on Abraham's neck. Any ill person that would see the stone would immediately be cured. When Abraham passed away, God took the stone and hung it on the orb of the sun. So, the commentary of the Tosafot and various renditions of the Tosafot and Bhavabhatra um, are troubled. The, if we take this uh, literally, which they do, so there were people who were ill, Kole, in the time of Abraham of Avinu, and they uh, came to um, uh, look at the stone on Abraham's chest and they were healed as a result thereof. But, says Tosafot, surely there's a Gemara in Baba Metzia 87a, where it says that before the time of Jacob, there was no such thing as illness. Ad Yaakov lo Until Jacob, there was no illness. Atta Yaakov ba'ar yachmei v'havachusha. Jacob came along and prayed for mercy. Shenem avayom el Yosef hinei avicha choleh. And then, until Elisha came, there was no illness from which a person recovered, till Elisha prayed, and then he was recovered, so on and so forth. So Tosafot asked the question, how can the Gemara and Baba Batra talk about people coming to gaze at the stone on Abraham's chest and be cured from their ailments as a result thereof? Surely the whole notion of Choli was simply not present. It was a it was non-existent in the universe in the day and age of Abraham. So Tosafot offered two explanations. One, they say, maybe we're talking about a type of Choli from which people die. But lesser malaise, lesser illness did exist. The second explanation in the name of Rabbi Natan and Rabbi Yitzchak, Tosafot say, is that until Yaakov Avinu, um, there was... Um, sorry, that was the explanation name of Rabbeinu Tam and Rabbeinu Yitzchak. But another interpretation that Tosas gives, the first interpretation that Tosas gives, is it depends um, what type of illness. 
an illness, a natural illness, uh, ill health didn't exist, but it was still possible for people to be hurt through injury. So it's possible, says Tosafot, that the Cholim that the Gemara refers to here that came to gaze at Abraham's stone were Cholim who um, suffered from a, a wound, an injury, and that is what made them um, ill, as a result of which they needed to be cured through this stone. So it's clear that the Balea Tosafot took this Gemara literally. They took the Gemara and Baba Batra literally. They took the Gemara and Baba Masiya literally. They had a question and they came up with two answers in typical Tosafistic fashion to differentiate between different types of illness, whether illnesses which is fatal illness or non-fatal illness, illness from a maca or illness from uh, other causes. And this is something which features in the writings of the Balea Tosafot. Now, we don't have access to what the Rambam would have said about this particular Agada, but what we do know is that um, in the writings, for example, of Rabbi Yitzhak Arama uh, in Akedat Yitzhak, Ala Torah, he gives us a much more philosophical interpretation that uh, if the Gemara of people, he says that the Choli that the Gemara refers to is um, a theological illness. People who came to Abraham Avinu, they came to learn from him that he should cure them from their spiritual malaises, from their philosophical blunders. And um, the same idea is found in a number of commentaries of that ilk. And they explain that what he, after Abraham died, God hung the stone on the Galgal Hama, on the orb of the sun. What that means is that um, how did Abraham Avinu come to his theological findings? Because as Maimonides himself explains in the first chapter of Ruchot Avadazara and the laws of idolatry, that uh, he looked at the sun and the moon and he asked, Heach, Yeheha Galgal, Sovev, how can all this operate without a primary cause? And this is how he came to understand that there is a super being, a supreme being, which is the creator. So after Abraham died, God, so to speak, returned to the sun. If people wanted to um, be corrected and led to understanding of the true reality, then they would have to find it out in the same way that Abraham found it out, which is by gazing at the heavens and understanding that it must have been the primary cause. To show you how far the impact of the Balea Tosafot is, or was, I'm just going to um, um, show you in Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, born in 1895, passed away in 1986, in his Shilot Moshe, Volume 4, Number 36. So there's a polemic there against people studying for a profession. He says people should study Torah. You shouldn't look for a profession. This, of course, is subject for another discussion about Maimonides' view. But... Um, 
Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's argument that even according to Maimonides, we'll perhaps discuss this on another occasion, um, people should study Torah. Of course, if push comes to shove, they should, uh, they'll have to work for a living as well. Uh, but uh, necessity is the mother of invention. But uh, ideally, everyone should learn. Um, what about, he says, a person who has a deep-seated intuition that his goal in life is to be a physician? And uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein acknowledges that the Chovat al-Vavot, Rabachia ibn Pakula, um, says in Shara Bitachon, chapter 3, that um, uh, when a person is designated to engage in a particular trade, a particular profession, a particular occupation, then God will instill in him a love for that profession. So what about those students in Yeshiva who feel inspired towards medicine? So Rabbi Feinstein says, most curiously, um, don't shoot the messenger, that it's not possible for a person to have a, a natural, deep-seated intuition that his, uh, his purpose in life is to be a, med- a, a physician. Why not? Because the whole notion of illness, and therefore physicians to cure illness, is a superimposed reality. Proof, until Abraham, no one was ill. This must mean that ontologically, illness is not part of the design of the universe. If it's not part of the initial design, it can't be that a person is created with a love and a calling a natural, um, visceral, magnetic pull towards the um, profession of being a physician, the occupation of being a doctor, because, he says, the whole notion of being a doctor is is an unnatural concept. Um, now, the truth is, uh, Ramesh's argument is difficult on a number of grounds, because even if initially it wasn't part of the intent, even if we follow the Bale Hatosophus, it does not necessarily mean that later on, after the time of Avraham Avinu, it didn't become ingrained in the very Teva Ha'olam and in the nature of mankind. And there are many ways that one could question the premise on which Ramesh builds his Teshuvah. However, what I'm, the reason I'm citing this Teshuvah of Ramesh Feinstein is to illustrate how far, how far the 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 came up with this idea, uh, this interpretation of the Gemara. In fact, you could even ask, according to the Baliatosis, perhaps the Baliatosis said even before Avraham Avinu, even even before Yaakov Avinu. There were people who, who could have non-fatal illnesses, so perhaps a person would be drawn to the profession, the, the vocation of being a physician, a physician for non-fatal illnesses. But what Moshe says is it shows how powerful the impact of the Baalei um, HaTosafot and their approach to Agoda, Agadot Chazal, 
was not only on Jewish thought, but even as Poskin in the 20th and 21st century continued to debate and discuss and unravel halacha, they are profoundly influenced by the shita of the Bali Atosikov. Um, very often one hears preachers ridicule this literal or hyper-literal approach to Agadotta Shas as if it was something like the Rambam discusses it, something that belongs to a, a class of madmen or primitive people. Actually, it's very clear that it was uh, the dominant view amongst the Baalei Hatosafot, to the point that one of the most um, uh, poignant expressions of this view was found in the early debate regarding Maimonides' view on the resurrection, on Tuchiyat HaMetim. We know that Rav Meir Halevi Abulefia, the author of Yad Ramah, um, uh, he was very upset when the Rambam's initiatory, the Rambam's writings came to Spain because it seemed to him and to many others from a cursory reading of Maimonides' writings in Hilchot Teshuvah, chapter 8, that the Rambam did not believe in physical resurrection. And thus he started an extremely rigorous correspondence with a number of different sages, both in Spain and Provence. And uh, the reason he was concerned, those who want to read about it in detail, uh, can read um, Professor Bernard Septimus has discussed this in great detail um, in his classical book on the subject of the Ramah, of Rabneir Halevi. And uh, he was, the, you will see there uh, in the writings of the Ramah, that he, Rabneir Halevi, that he was concerned that if the masses were to think that there would be no reward in this world, uh, the resurrection of the dead is only something, is not a reality of this world, then they will become disenchanted with Judaism. For them, only the promise of a physical reward in the world that they knew and recognized, they related to um, in, a, in a tangible and concrete way would be meaningful. So Rabbi Meir Halevi was concerned that this uh, philosophical approach to the resurrection as being uh, in a non-disembodied existence would undermine the faith and therefore the practice of observance of the masses. And he uh, uh, was uh, incensed. And um, so then in the correspondence that evolved as a result of this concern of Rabbi Meir Alivi, there were some who um, rejected his, his complaints and actually supported, were happy to support the Rambam's approach. Ultimately, Rameh Halevi's mind was put to rest because the Rambam wrote the Igeret Triatamitim, the uh, so-called epistle on the resurrection, as a result of which uh, at least most people 
felt um, reconciled, they felt that the Rambam had made his views clear. Uh, not to say that others didn't still continue to believe that the Rambam was not uh, being completely um, transparent in his garret to Chiyat Hamidim. But the, but the Ramah himself, Abulafia himself, he, he, was, he, were, he accepted that. Now, in the context of that discussion, the, the, one of the correspondents that, uh, that Abulafia um, conversed about this subject with was Rabbi Shimshon of Mishans, the Rash Mishans of Sans, S-E-N-S. And uh, he quotes an Agadic statement, the Gemorim of Abbasar, which describes um, life ostensibly after the resurrection and it clearly speaks about a very tangible physical materialistic existence. Now although this is an Agadic statement he concludes, after quoting the Gemara, incredulously, he says, Can it, come on, possibly entertain the idea that Agadot Chazal are not to be understood Kipshutan? In other words, it was axiomatic to one of the Baalei Atosfot, Rabbi Shimshin, author of the commentary on Zerayim and Taharot, that uh, the Mishnah, that Agadot Chazal I'll go further. I don't want to give too many examples, but just to accentuate, to underscore the 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 uh, the intensity of this view. So, on the verse in in Genesis one twenty two, where um, Adam says. The Talmud says, Rashi quotes it in his commentary on the Torah, This teaches us that Adam, in his uh, primordial state, copulated with every beast and bird, and he didn't feel settled until he had a relationship with Chava. So now this this uh, this statement is extremely strange for a whole host of reasons. Um, this um, so so to speak primordial rampage in the Garden of Eden um, raised the ire of many Christians as well, who mocked the sages of Israel for suggesting such a thing. And therefore, Rabbi Yudaloi of Prague, the Maharal, in all his form, in his commentary, Gurar Yeh, la Torah, in his Chidushe uh, Agadot on, uh, on Yivamot Samechtimu, in his, um, in his, Be'ir uh, Hagola, Hagola, chapter six, uh, is adamant that this is clearly not to be taken literally. It's clearly not to be taken literally. And yet, Rabbi David Halevi, the author of the Turei Zahav, Taz, writes in his commentary, Divrei David Ala Torah, he says, 
How could it be that Adam copulated with all the beasts? Uh, surely Adam was commanded not to commit bestiality. To which he says that these um, relationships took place before God gave the commandment against bestiality. And just in case it may occur to someone to think that perhaps these are godot are not to be taken literally, says the Taz, you ought not to um, deny the literal meaning of Agadot Chazal. Okay. Um, so therefore, the Rambam, when the Rambam spoke about these three classes of people, and the primitive classes, and then the small group of people who understand that the rabbi spoke in parables and riddles. Um, he was right, it was a small group of people, because it seems that there was a widespread notion of understanding a Gadot Chazal literally. Sometimes it's difficult to even understand in the course of history to what extent there's a certain paradox or, or even contradiction. I'll give you an example. This statement of the Rambam in Perak Helek about the three classes of people who approach Agadot is quoted, amongst others, by Rabbi Yeshai Horowitz, the Shalar, Shnei Luchot Habrit. He quotes it in its entirety. Ostensibly, one would seem that he is uh, lending credence to the view of Maimonides. And yet, in one place in the writings of the Shalah, he discusses a strange Agadic statement found in Mo'ed Katan, Yudchet, where the Gemara discusses the stature of the ancient king of Egypt, Pharaoh, Pharaoh in Memosha, the Pharaoh in the Mosaic times. And it says that he was a cubit tall, and his beard was a cubit long, and his membrane, his organ, was just over a cubit long. So the Shalah, um, as others, suggests a non-analogorical, midrashic, homiletical interpretation of this Agadar but not before saying, don't think for a moment that this interpretation is to replace the literal meaning of the Agadah. Of course, Pharaoh was a miniature king with a disproportionate beard and male organ. So it's often difficult to square how later authorities were on the one hand influenced by the Rambam, quoted his words with ostensible approval, and yet at the same time in other writings of the very same authors continued to understand Agadic statements in the way that the Baalei Atosafot had understood them previously. Now, I haven't really said anything new, Bertsen, 
And this is uh, a standard discussion about Maimonides' view on Agadot. And, of course, Maimonides is not the only person, but I think I've given a little bit of context, historical context, parallel comparative context, um, and shown had the Rambam seen the tshuva of Rabbi Feinstein regarding being a physician, now he builds a castle on the Gemara in Baba Basra that there was no holy, above Metzia, there was no illness until the time of Jacob, uh, I don't think he would have been enamored with that particular teshuva. Parenthetically, I would like to add that I recently discovered uh, in my own research um, the existence of an early school which treats Agada um, in a way which I think goes further than Maimonides or what Maimonides says explicitly. Um, I came across this, this particular approach in a work called Elef Hamagen of Rabbi Solomon of Crete in the Greek islands. Elef Hamagen is a commentary on the Agadic teachings of the Talmud in, in Mesachet Megillah, and it was published by Barilan University. And um, this author articulates a relatively consistent thesis of what is called today creative Agada. What do I mean creative Midrash? The Rambam speaks about Chazal saying things, which he says were not factual, they're riddles, they're parables. But sometimes it seems as if Chazal talk, are talking about historical reality. So, for example, uh, in, 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 in the first chapter of Migilat Esther, it says that uh, when Vashti rebelled against the Hashverosh, so, um, he spoke, he consulted with the sages, so the Talmud says that he came to the rabbis, he came to the uh, sages of Israel. Now, the sages of Israel had a discussion. They said, what should we tell him? Should we tell him to get rid of Vashti, to kill her? So then tomorrow he'll sober up and he'll demand her back from us. Should we tell him to um, forego her sin? He'll be angry. What do you mean? How can we support? How can we ignore someone who has slighted his honor to the degree that Vashti did? So the Talmud says what they told him was that from the day we've been exiled from our land, we no longer have the um, peace of mind and the stability which enables us to give good counsel, and they sent him elsewhere. So that doesn't sound like a parable. It sounds as if the Midrash is filling in the story. It's telling us what happened. So Rabbi Solomon of Crete, in his... Uh, in his Alephama again on the Megillah, he says, he says, no. He says, 
the rabbis told this story, not because it ever happened, and not because it was a riddle either. It's not a marshal. It's not a mashal. The rabbis told this story because they wanted to teach a lesson. Very often when people are asked advice, especially by those who walk in the corridors of power, they feel extremely chuffed and they say, hmm, this is nice. So he tells us it's a vice. You can fall in. You may feel a sense of grandiose glory that you're being consulted by the powers that be. But actually, there's nothing to get excited about. And it could be that the temporary joy that you may get from such an encounter will actually be short-lived and turn into disaster. And therefore, it is prudent advice to find a way out. Don't get involved. Don't get involved. The rabbis wanted to convey this message, he says, and therefore they built in a story which they invented into the Megillah. And he says as follows, do not think that the rabbis of the Talmud believed that this conversation ever took place. That Achashverosh discussed things with the consulted the rabbis and the rabbis said they can't get involved because of the reasons mentioned. This conversation never existed, never happened. It was an invented story which was woven in to the narrative of the Megillah by the rabbis who wanted to teach people immoral. And what's a better way of teaching people a lesson than building it into the Purim story? So then uh, it's a pedagogic device to get people to listen to messages. I would like to think that the Rambam may well have accepted this idea but I think this notion of what I call creative Midrash rather than allegorical Midrash my terms is something which takes um, the idea of the Rambam a stage further than the Rambam clearly articulates himself okay thus This is the first part of my Shia. And I would like to move on to another point within the Rambam's within the Rambam's thought. Till now we've discussed the meaning of Akadah. Now I would like to discuss the authority of Agadah. And I'm going to um, pick as a starting point a comment that is not found in Maimonides' writings himself, but it is found in the writings of Rabbi Avraham, the son of the Rambam, in his commentary on the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, chapter 22, we all know, there is the story of the Akedah, Akedat Yitzhak,
how old was Yitzhak at the time of the Akedah? So our sages tell us this is in Sanhedrin, 89b, in the Midrash in various places, that Isaac at the time of the binding was 37 years of age. And the sages um, derive this at least in part from the fact that not long in the next portion of the Torah, Genesis chapter 23, is the passing of Sarah. And therefore, if we assume that the two narratives, the two episodes happened in close proximity to each other, so then that would have been the age of Yitzchak at the time, 37. Ibn Ezra, in his commentary on the verse, says, How old was Yitzchak? The sages say he was 37. He says, I find that difficult to accept because if he was 37, he would have run away. He would have fled. Some say he was about five, says the Ibn Ezra, but I can't accept that either because how would he be able to carry the wood if he was only five years old? Therefore, says Ibn Ezra, I believe that he was nearly bar mitzvah, maybe about 12. In the commentary of Rabbi Avraham ben Arambam ala Torah, which has recently been republished by Rabbi Moshe Maimon, a great scholar who lives in Lakewood, um, we have the following. He says, the time of the Akedah was close to the time of the demise of Sarah. This is the opinion of the Chachamim. You say that Yitzchak obeyed Abraham. Avol Abba Mori Zichrona Lebracha. But my father of blessed memory, Kibalti Mimenu, I received from him, Shuvoya Marchiket Zeharbei, that he rejected this opinion. Vaya Omer, and he used to say, Shiru Haya Adavakach, Haya Beemet. If that was the case, then Isaac's subordination to the divine will would have been greater, in a sense, than Abraham's. And the reward and the recompense for Yitzchak would have been more than that which was promised to Abraham. Scripture, he says, about Rome, the son of the Rambam says in the name of the Rambam, does not in any way indicate that this was the case. The Yitzchok, the Yitzchok, Yitzchok was, was, was the hero of the narrative of the Akedah at all. This is an argument which the Ibn Ezra himself says. In fact, Rabbi Shalom Bazili, in his defense of the Kabbalah, in the work called the Menuhat Chachamim, chapter 16, he cries the teachers, the school teachers, who follow the philosophy, such as the words of the Maimonides in the Guide and the commentary of Ibn Ezra. And he gives us an example that um, 
they, they teach them the words of Ibn Ezra about um, the idea that uh, when, when the binding of Yitzchak was only when he was a child rather than when he was an adult. And uh, he decries this. At any rate, why do I mention this? Because I think this is a petach. This serves as an opening to the view of the Rambam regarding the authority of the sages. The Rambam clearly, according to this report of his son, did not have a problem in rejecting the opinion of the sages regarding the age of Abraham of Yitzchak at the time of the Akhidah. He was quite happy to say that Abraham was that Yitzchak was a lot younger than the sages said he was. So I want to pose a simple question here. On what basis did the Rambam feel justified to be marchik, to reject the view of the sages that Yitzchak was 37? It seems to be not a minority view. It seems to have been the unanimous opinion of the sages. There are some times in the writings of the Rambam where he rejects a view of the sages which he says is a minority view. So, for example, in his letter to the sages of Montpellier regarding astrology, Rambam says three reasons why he's not impressed with the fact that astrology is celebrated in the Gemara. Because, he says, actually, um, um, it could be that this is just a view of a Yahid or Yahidim. It's a minority view. But here we're not talking about a minority view. So every yeshiva bacha or high school kid you will talk to today would be surprised. They would say, what on earth is going on here? Why does the Rambam, or for that matter, Ibn Ezra, not abide by the words of the sages? Now, of course, this is not a halachic matter. Still, in this part of Torah Shabbat should you tell me that the Rambam felt that Midrashic teachings were not really part of Torah as one person I spoke to suggested I cannot accept that because in Hulchot Talmud Torah in the Mishneh Torah the Rambam writes explicitly that Agadot Chazal, the Midrashim, the Agadic sections of Chazal, are included in Shalish Betalm. Passing like the Gemara and Kedushim, Rolami Shalish Adam, a person should divide his time into three, Shalish Benikra, Shalish Benishna, Shalish Betalmud. So Agadot Chazal are included in Shalish Betalmud. And by the way, the Rambam also says that Maasei Merkava, Maasei Bereshit, which are the highest levels of learning which a person can aspire to, according to the Rambam, are also included in Shlish Betalmud. 
So on what basis would Rambam reject the teachings of Hazal, which are in the Talmud, as a matter of Talmudic Torah, Torah we can call it colloquially, just because he had a question that he doesn't think that scripture seems to um, uh, support the view of the sages. Um, so the answer that I would like to suggest is by introducing another question. You always ask, answer a question by asking another question. The question that I want to ask now is why, according to the Rambam, till now I asked, how could the Rambam argue with the sages regarding the age of Isaac at the time of the Akedah? Now I'm going to ask a different question. Why did the Rambam feel obliged to agree with the sages on all other matters of halakha? The Rambam writes in his Haktamat Mishneh Torah that we have accepted all the rulings of the sages. Why? Why, why can't one of the Gu'onim, one of the Rishonim, or the Rambam himself, argue with Abaya and Rava? Why can't they argue with Rabina and Ravashay? You see, the sixth generation Amoraic sage could argue with the first generation Amoraic sage. Why can't a post-Amoraic sage, a post-Talmudic sage, argue with the Talmudic sage? The answer to this question is expressed by the Rambam himself in his introduction to Mishnah Torah and also in the comment of Rabbi Yosef Karo to Hilchot Mamrim, the Laws of Rebels, chapter 2. Where, and I'm going to use the tourist terminology of the Kesef of Mishnah, Hilchot Mamrim, where he explains why cannot, cannot an Amora, Amoraic sage, argue with a Tana? Why cannot a post Amoraic sage argue with an Amora? So he says that from the day that the Mishnah was sealed, the Jewish people accepted upon themselves that the Mishnah is the final court of appeal. You can't argue. Similarly, from the day that the Talmud has been sealed, ratified, the Jewish people have accepted upon themselves that the Talmud is the final court of appeal. We can't disagree. Now, Rabbi Shlomo Fisher, in his Derashot Bet Yishai, makes the valid point that the notion of Yom Chatimat HaTalmud is a myth, because there was no such day. The Talmud wasn't sealed on any one given day. There was no synod, there was no assembly of all the sages which they got together and decided that's it, we're going to draw a line in the sand, the Talmud is now over. Such a day, loya Rather, 
Hatimat al-Tamud refers to a consensus that emerged over a course of time, over a period of time. There was such a consensus. Yom Hatimat al-Tamud. At any rate, according to the Rambam's view, as articulated also by the Kesat Mishnah, if we are to ask why can Maimonides not argue with Ravina or the Shas, he would say there's no essential reason. It's not because suddenly there was a Yiridata, the road to decline of the generations, that after the Talmud, a certain wisdom disappeared and faded into oblivion. No one can argue with the wise sages of the Talmud anymore. No. Rather, the consensus emerged. We're going to treat this as authoritative. We're accepting upon ourselves. It's like a Kabbalah kahal, a commitment on behalf of the community. Communal commitments, collective commitments, are extremely powerful in history and in the history of halakha as well. The whole notion that we have later on of Rishonim and Achronim and all these distinctions with the Kabbalah Piskei Maran in certain Sephardi circles, all of this is about um, collective consensus. That's why the Rambam may decide to paskin like Abaye or Rova, like Rav or like Rabbi Yochanan, like the Chachamim or like Rabbi Yehuda, and he will allow himself a certain jurist license in deciding who the Halacha follows. But the Rambam will not argue with the Talmud. In matters of Halacha, because the sages of the Talmud were superior, because the sages of the Talmud were um, uh, light years ahead of him in terms of their wisdom, not according to the Rambam's thought. From the Rambam's perspective, the reason that he wouldn't argue with the sages of the Talmud is because out of deference to the fact that he saw, perceived, and understood that there was a collective commitment within the collective Kali soul to abide by the Talmud. Based on this, we can come to answer the first question that we asked in relation to Agadot. Should you ask me, how come the Rambam doesn't accept the Agadic teachings of the sages in the Talmud and Sanhedrin in the relative in the parallel Midrashim that Isaac was 37 at the time of the Akidah? How could he argue with that, as his son reports? The answer is, because as far as the Rambam is concerned, there is no essential reason, there is no ontological reason why he can't argue with one of the sages. The fact that he doesn't argue with them in matters of halakha is because of the consensus of Kral Such consensus was only with regard to matters of halakha. Such a consensus was only in regard to the court of appeal, to din Torah, to laws 
תקנות, מנהגות, דינים והלכות. That's where the Talmud was ratified and the Talmud was elevated and put on a pedestal of prominence. By Klal Yisrael, we accepted it, we dedicated it, we cannot deny it. But with regard to Agadah, which is matters of thought and speculation, human what the mind thinks, the wells of wisdom were not, not dried up and they continue. And just like the Talmudic or Midrashic sages amongst themselves will argue, an earlier sage with a later sage, a later sage with an earlier sage, so too the Rambam can disagree. So the sages say he was 37, the Rambam says, I think he wasn't 37. Is that clear? Does this mean that the Rambam would not accept as authoritative any teachings of Chazal in Agadic or Midrashic literature? I think the answer is no. And in order to articulate where I think the Rambam would draw distinction, I'm going to cite the teaching of the Rambam in his very last chapter of his Magnum Opus, the Mishnatari of the Yad Hazakah, chapter 1000. The Mishnah Torah consists of 1,000 chapters. In Ilchot Melachim Melchamotehem, chapter 12, subsection 2. The Rambam discusses the rabbinic tradition regarding the prophet Elijah. The Rambam says, The plain sense of the scripture that in the Tchilat Yimot HaMashiach there will be a war, Gog and Magog, and that before the war of Gog and Magog, a prophet will arise to prepare their hearts, so on and so forth. And then the Rambam says, some say that Elijah will come before Mashiach. That means according to the first view, he'll come after the advent of the Messiah, and some say he will come before. So the Rambam says, all these things and similar matters, someone will not know how they will be until they will come to pass. Because the statements of the prophets, the matters are not clear. And the sages, too, do not have a clear tradition on these subjects, except for the apparent implications of the Pesukim. 
And what they said was, This is why he says they have disputes, differences of opinion in these matters. Rambam is clearly talking about Agadic sections of the Talmud, which discuss the future, it's not halakha. And he says, some sages say it will be before, some sages will say it will be after. There's numerous disputes. And he says the reason for these disputes is because the sages have no Kabbalah. There's no tradition. There are some times in the Rambam places where he speaks about a rabbinic tradition. So, for example, in Ilkhot Beta Bechira, chapter 2, beginning of chapter 2, he said that in Soret Biyad Akor, we have a universal tradition that the place in which the temple was built, the Mizbech was built in Jerusalem, was the place in which Adam and Noah and so on built their altars and offered sacrifices on. There are many things where the Rambam acknowledges that the sages had in the Surah, a tradition, the Kabbalah, but with regard to whether Elijah is coming before the advent of the Messiah or after, he says they have no Messiah. Why did one rabbi say one way and the other rabbi say the other way? It was an educated guess. Scripture can be read either way. Some understood Scripture one way, some understood Scripture the other way. What I therefore venture to say is that where the sages expressed, articulated a Messiah, a tradition, then the Rambam would accept the tradition of the sages as authoritative. But when there is no tradition and the Rambam sees the sages operating using the tools of Talmudic and Midrashic dialectics and hermeneutics, in such cases the Rambam would not advocate that we have to submit ourselves to either of you. Now the Rambam himself indicates in this particular case of when Eliyahu is coming his own preference but he doesn't decide returning to the example that we've used to weave our discussion around the subject of the age of Isaac at the time of the Akedah the Rambam would say that this wasn't a matter of Kabbalah. When the sages said he was 37, this wasn't based on a tradition. Rather, it was based, as Maimonides, the son of the Rambam himself says, on the juxtaposition of the two parashiyot of the narrative of the Akedah, the episode of Esau's death, and so on. Because it wasn't based on a Masurah, it was something that was said based on their understanding, conjecture. This is something where the sages can consider one opinion and the Rambam can say another opinion. 
since it's not relevant to halacha, the Rambam doesn't feel that he has to subordinate himself to that teaching. If it's a matter of Masora, if it's a matter of tradition, then the Rambam would, I suspect, hold otherwise. This is not so different, by the way, than the Ibn Ezra, uh, who, if you study his commentary on the Torah, you will see that the Ibn Ezra also divided the Agadic teachings of our sages into two. Those which he said were Kabbalah, in Kabbalah in a Kabel, and those which he thought were Misavara. If it was Kabbalah, then he felt obliged to pay homage to their view. If it was Masorah, if it was not Masorah, if it was if it was um, uh, Misorah, what the Rambam says, then the Rambam, then the then 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 the Ebenezer would feel okay to disagree. We could continue on this theme a lot more, and I think that you see this actually throughout the Rambam's um, references two Akkadic teachings in the guide. That uh, sometimes the Rambam will say, don't ask me a question from the sages because this reflects one view, I get according to the other view. Like he does in the third section of the guide when he speaks about Tamei Amitzvot, he said, don't ask me a question from the Mishnah. Because that reflects the view of the Chachamim who held the mitzvahs of no reasons. But there are some occasions where the Rambam would seem to accept or to assert that he does not feel caged in in matters of theology and philosophy and Jewish thought and even in matters of interpretation of scripture, by the opinion and to the authority of the rabbis. Turn, for example, for a moment to Egeret Tchiat Hamitim, the Rambam's epistle on resurrection. Ultimately, he says that the reason he felt compelled to accept the literal um, notion of a resurrection was because there are a couple of verses in Scripture, verses in Scripture, that cannot be understood but literally. So, in terms of the Rambam's legacy, we have here, I believe, an extremely important contribution. The first part of tonight's presentation, I focused on that which has often been discussed, the Rambam's 
um, non-literal, in contrast to the sophistic, literal, hyper-literal attitude towards Agod, interpretation of Agadot. In the second part of the presentation tonight, I focus on something which is extremely central to the Rambam's whole thought process. Having said that, as I mentioned earlier, the Rambam writes explicitly that the study of Agadot, which clearly include items which the Rambam does not consider to be binding, is still very much considered to be an intrinsic part of Talmud Torah, I've already overstayed my welcome tonight. If anyone has any comments, um, I would be um, extremely grateful if you were to share them with the host uh, and you were to send them in. And I would be happy to review them and to take on board any suggestions, recommendations, questions, and even refutations, uh, and needless to say, constructive criticism that anyone may have to offer. Thank you very much again for inviting me to this esteemed group to address you, and I hope that um, and that we should uh, return together to engross, to engage ourselves in Tamutara collectively. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kacham. That was very sophisticated uh, presentation. And uh, you're, you're never overstaying your welcome. We, we always love listening, uh, hearing from you. Um, if anyone has any questions or comments, they can raise their hand um, or unmute. Um, if I may, I, I have something. Um, so at the end, the Rav mentioned how um, is all agada open? Meaning, is there is there a time does the Rambam will say, okay, there is an authoritative um, agada that he, that he, we will take um, as, as as authority? And you said yes, like when there is a masoret, when there is a tradition, so Rambam would give it uh, credence. And you gave the example of um, in the Beta Bechira, so it says masoret uh, beyadko. But could it be it could be argued that that's a that's something historical? Meaning that's about the location of something that was. So the Masorat Biadkol could be it because meaning the tradition is on something that's actual like what occurred historically, but not necessarily on a philosophical idea. Do we have an example of a Masorat that spread about a philosophical idea that became authoritative? Um like with, with Halakha, at least there's at least it went through a court. It was adjudicated by a court, maybe not the Sanhedrin, but at least there was a court that published it and made it on some level authoritative. But where do we find that by a philosophical idea? Well, I think that it's a good question, but I think that a good example for that would be some of the items that the Rambam includes in his 13 principles. So, for example, when the Rambam seeks to underscore um, his Ikar Hashimini, the eighth principle of faith, uh, he quotes the teachings of the sages that God was like, uh, Moses was like a scribe uh, writing down what God said. Now, this is, of course, a Midrashic teaching. So the Rambam treats it with great reverence. Um, and uh, 
sees it clearly as a tradition. Um, and, um, and this is not a, a legal matter, it's a matter, a philosophical, theological matter. Um, and if you go through the Rambam's presentation in his commentary in the Mishnah, the 13 principles, and you look at what he cites to support, and like it's often based on the firm bedrock of Agadic teachings. Um, but there are also um, other say other statements of Rambam. Um, which may not be included in the Ikarim, but the Rambam seems to accept as authoritative, although sometimes it's not clear because sometimes it may be because simply he happens to agree with him. Um, but a thorough exploration of this would require a more systematic a study of all the Rambam's references to non-halachic teachings, and that's the subject of a doctorate in its own right, and maybe some more.